the narrative has to expand to talk about sustainability. Because if you look at uh, the, the, the thoughts behind Islamic finance, it's about the people, it's about the planet, and it's about prosperity, and it's about no one being left behind. Hello and welcome. I'm Shiza, your host of Reinvision Business and co-founder of UpEffect. If you're new to our work, over the last five years, we've loved amplifying and supporting business models that prioritize equity, conservation, and economic empowerment. We're now advancing this work through our Reinvision Business podcast. This series will highlight the emerging need for responsible trade that uplifts communities frequently left behind. In this episode, I sit down with Dr. Rushdi Siddiqui, co-founder of iPortal Live. His platform is focused on building inclusive digital pathways for organizations stewarding responsible solutions aligned to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. iPortal Live recently hosted the first of its kind conference on rebuilding Palestine. It brought together Palestinian business leaders and Islamic finance players to explore how together we can share resources and networks to serve Palestinian-owned organizations. Rushdie also recently co-founded World Waqf Day, a charitable endowment which has been used widely throughout Islamic history to develop and support communities. In this conversation, we discuss the importance of centering resources and wealth distribution above wealth creation, and how Waqf and charity offers a promising solution to many of the problems impacting humanity. Here is my conversation with Rushdie. Welcome to Reinvision Business. We're so grateful to have you here, Rushdie. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here and uh, also learn from you. Thank you. Yeah, um, you and I recently connected with regards to World Waqf Day, which we'll touch on today. But I just thought um, it's just incredibly rare to find people in the Islamic finance sector that are talking about the importance of stewarding socially responsible solutions as opposed to the traditional wealth creation pathways that we find in the business space. And I'm just really looking forward to learning more about the important work that you're engaged in and what Waqf as a concept and what a Waqf economy could look like um, for today's world. So I'd, as um, as I like to do with most guests that come on the series, I would love to just start with you know your journey and understand how did you find yourself working in the field of Islamic finance? Okay. We're all accidental tourists, if you really think about it. No one plans to be where they're going to be uh, 15 or 20 years. You take this road with its... Uh, curves and speed bumps and potholes, and then you figure things out. So I, we were raised in the United States, more specifically Brooklyn, and Islam to us was cultural Islam. It was, you know, the fasting and going to Sunday school and being in time for Maghrib prayers with the family or so there were consequences. And so that was a proxy of our understanding of Islam growing up. After graduating from uh, law school, I happened to be at a colleague's house and I saw a magazine called Islamic Banker. And I'm like thinking to myself, Islamic Banker? I've never seen those two words put together in one sentence, let alone one next to the other. So glanced through it, and it was fascinating that you're actually taking a faith 
and creating a financial system. Someone who's 25, 26 years old, I was naive. I'm sure there are more mature people at that age, but for me, it was naive. And then when I started working for a broker deal on Wall Street, I basically said, I want to look into this because the Muslim population in the United States at that time, the 1990s, was growing and emerging, and there was very little on the Islamic. But how do you get your name out. And I'm thinking to myself, why don't I write an article? But you got to write something that is interesting instead of a Me Too article. So I said, you know what? I will write about Islamic equity indexes because I worked on Wall Street and equity indexes are part and parcel of asset management. So wrote something, um, researched it to the best of my ability. Remember, there was no internet at the time. And so a lot of that was whatever I could access in library books and conversations. And lo and behold, sent it to Mushtaq Parker, who's the publisher of Islamic Banker, and they actually published it, to my surprise. And long story short, um, that particular article was then brought to the attention of um, a wealth manager in uh, Wall Street would manage money according to Islamic principles. And then he introduced me to Dow Jones uh, Index's president. And one thing led to another, and I wound up as the global director for Dow Jones Islamic Market Index in 1999 when we launched this index. So that was the entry wedge into this space. That's a remarkable journey um, to find, you know, a magazine to inspire you and compel you to enter this space and to see the achievements that you've, you know, managed to acquire whilst on this journey. Was there something specific about the Islamic finance sector that, you know, you felt it had the potential to change the way our current banking systems and conventional banking systems operate? At that time, no, uh, because my interest was the excitement of being in the space, right? As you get into the space and you start talking and learning, that's when you start formulating a game plan for execution. For me, the key issue was how can we bring this as an alternative to Muslims living in America, right? Um, and that was uh, very interesting. But being on the Dow Jones platform, that has a global reach because of the brand. So from that perspective, what I was saying that we should have um, a Sukuk index. So uh, several years later, we launched the Dow Jones Citigroup uh, Sukuk index and then an Islamic sustainability index 2006. So for me... And what is a Sukuk for those that might be okay. unaware of it? Uh, Sukuk, um, the nearest equivalent would be a bond. Everyone is familiar with the concept of a bond, a debt instrument. In the Islamic space, we use a concept called sukuk, the equivalent of a bond. It's backed by real assets, and it's in the permissible space, and you go through the whole process of registration. You have scholars that sign off on its compliance, and lo and behold, you got a sukuk. And Western countries, such as the U.K., have issued two sovereign sukuks. So in this short period of time, we're seeing Western institutions and governments looking into this space as an alternative for raising money. I understand that the reason we've needed to create our own debt instruments is because the way conventional 
banking and bonds work is because there's interest involved, which is forbidden in Islam and Islamic finance. So when we look to the original teachings of Islamic finance and just, you know, given the work that you're doing today, um, the many benefits that it has to offer is a fairer distribution of wealth within society, in, protect, in particular when it comes to protecting our most marginalized members and those that are traditionally underserved by our systems. But a properly executed Islamic economic system is very hard to find um, in the world today, as it you know merely exists in small fragments spread across the world. And although impact is increasingly on the Islamic economy agenda, we're still playing catch up to the advancements of the social enterprise world, um, despite you know investments in fair trade and positive products being a core tenet of the Islamic financial model. And just you know, I, I, again, I know we're going to touch a, a little bit about this, but I guess I would love to hear from you: is how do you feel? the Islamic finance sector is addressing these needs and where, if at all, has it fallen short given the extensive wealth gaps that we find in Muslim countries today? Um, there's a lot of work to do, truth be told. You can uh, have, there's a got donations and purification of impermissible income going to that, but those are rounding errors in the biggest scheme of things, Okay. We need um, a critical mindset movement. Islamic banking and finance is for the bankable. It's collateral-based finance. And if you look at the Muslim world, which is the 56 countries, and all of them are either emerging markets or frontier markets, Islamic finance um, has generally a very small amount uh, of presence in these countries, except for Malaysia, uh, Saudi, Bahrain, UAE, and so on and so forth, but generally speaking. The big, the bigger issue here is, uh, I have to tell you this story. So in 2010-9, I was at an event called Bull Talks in um, Dubai. And it was myself, a prisoner from Guantanamo Bay, a woman documentary filmmaker from the Emirates and a reporter uh, uh, covering, I think it was at that time, the Exxon um, spill. And they had fantastic stories, right, about being a prisoner and how they survived and it connected with the audience. And then this reporter, how they're reporting uh, and causing a change in processes, right? And this woman, wonderful woman, who is the first uh, documentary film. And then there's this story about me trying to tell a story about Islamic finance at that same level. I'm like thinking to myself, prohibition of interest and a prohibition of uncertainty and prohibition of speculation is not going to connect with the audience, right? Yeah. At that point in time, I had this um, epiphany that we need to think about from a point of impact. What is this movement going to do for the undocumented, for the unbanked, for those who are marginalized, right? And at that point in time, I said, the narrative has to expand to talk about sustainability. Because if you look at uh, the, the, the thoughts behind Islamic finance, it's about the people, it's about the planet, and it's about prosperity, and it's about no one being left behind. Now, yeah. if you look at the sustainable development goals, it's about the people, it's about the planet, and it's about yeah. prosperity, no one uh, left behind. But Islam 
predates the SDGs, as do most faiths who have this reference. And if you look at the 17 SDGs, and if you look at the Fard prayers, the obligatory prayers of Fajr, Zohar, Asar, Maghrib, and Isha, it's 17. So there's an a interesting alignment of 17 SDGs and the 17 obligatory prayers for a Muslim. So, I mean, these are interesting stories that I talk about because people remember stories and not facts and and, and, and winners. So what we are focused in on is what is trending because what is trending is what matters to people. Climate matters to people. Sustainability matters to people. Inclusion matters to people. Women empowerment matters to people. Now, Islamic finance is now tiptoeing into this space. My follow-up question is, the Islamic banks, uh, what is their carbon footprint, right? They have exposure to fossil fuel. They've got exposure to extractive industries. What are their own internal processes? So you can be compliant and try to be free from interest, but you have a carbon footprint in your operations and you've got exposure to fossil fuel. And we know what uh, that's about today. Halal food. Uh, I think you and I talked about this, uh, and, and, and it was referenced at the event yesterday. The Muslim world as a whole is a net importer of food. So what is the carbon footprint of the halal food and the food mileage? These are important issues to young people. Whether you're Muslim, whether you are someone who cares about this, whether you are someone in between, these are opportunities for Muslims and non-Muslims to do something. This is a pain point. These are pressing issues that have to be addressed in a very large and growing um, addressable market. Absolutely. I think um, I think where the Islamic finance sector gets stuck is it often talks about the prohibition of interest and the need to talk about you know, the, the way, how to reimagine the way we do banking. But really what it's done is it's just slightly tweaked the current conventional model of capitalism and found loopholes to build something that still serves wealth creation. And there's nothing wrong with creating wealth. We're, we're allowed to, it's permissible to do that. But I think where I feel the Islamic finance sector has gone wrong is when we look at, you know, the concept of modest fashion being um, a key example of, you know, um, the Islamic economy. But what does that mean when the people that are making those clothes are making modest clothes are being made in sweatshops, right? If we're not, in, if we're not actually ensuring that the people and the labor that goes into the creation of our products are being fairly compensated, but beyond that, where we're financially empowering them to become independent and so that they can be a part of the economy, not marginalized where we're just exploiting their precarious condition because they come from um, an under underprivileged background. Um, that doesn't really say speak too highly of the Islamic economy and the way it's functioning. So just in terms of the examples that you shared, I think those are really, really important for us to um, be able to understand where the potential lies. But also I would say it goes beyond the fact that there's trends that the Islamic finance sector needs to follow um, because really the work 
that the social enterprise movement is trying to do is actually very strongly aligned to the original teachings of Islamic finance and Islamic economics. That framework already exists for the economy, but it's it's just not being adhered to. So it's interesting, and I, I guess I would be curious to hear whether um, you feel there is an appetite within that um, within that sector um, around stewarding socially responsible solutions and what that appetite looks like. Because I know that you're doing really important work, and and I would love to hear more about you know um, uh, what's happening with World Wealth Day and and the concept of Wealth, how how that can be a framework to actually alleviate some of these concerns that are posed by the challenges of the current economic state. Um, that's a great segue into this. Um, so Wakf uh, is an endowment in the secular terms and endowments are all, all around us. We've been exposed to it, not knowing it. So a Wakf is basically an inalienable charitable endowment in perpetuity and the beneficiary cannot reclaim it, right? And it's for a community, it's for a cause and in between. and What's interesting about the Wolf, it's about impact. It's about impacting a, uh, a community and cause that has been marginalized or has been discounted. Right? Now, if we look at the West in the last 20 years, impact investing has become prominent from family offices to philanthropic institutions to NGOs, now institutional investors. They feel a sense of responsibility where they're trying to reduce the wealth gap. They're trying to uplift um, those, and those are wonderful things. And it's getting momentum because there's trillions of dollars behind it. Islam has been talking about wakf for the last 1,400 years. One of the oldest wakfs is Al-Azhar University and Mosque in, so, in, in uh, Egypt, over 1,000 years old. And there's a number of examples. The point here is Islamic social finance, which is a little bit different than Islamic finance. Islamic social finance has zakat, which is an alms, which is one of the five pillars of Islam. It has waqf, which is an endowment. Um, and these things, I honestly believe, is going to lead uh, the Muslims to align themselves to what I think God wants us to do which is to uplift humanity. Uh, so we are focusing less on wealth creation, but focusing more on wealth distribution. That is a key issue. Distribution to whom and distribution for what purpose. That is where the young people, a lot of your listeners, whether they're Muslims or non-Muslims, they believe in impact. These are um, impact uh, philanthropy, impact investing, impact financing. This is the way uh, forward. So in terms of World Wakf Day, we wanted an antidote to conspicuous consumption that's contributing to climate change, right? We've got Alibaba Singles Day. We've got Amazon's Prime Day. We've got Black Friday and probably others where you buy as much as you can, get into debt, and you rarely use that stuff, and it goes into a landfill. The world has Earth Day, the world has Environment Day, the world has Refugee Day, Women's Day. For that one day, we think about that particular group. Why not have a day that's dedicated to the have-nots? 
And there's a lot in this world that are the have-nots, where we think about them, reflect upon them. And then what we want people to do on World Buff Day is to make a Waqf pledge, to basically say, I will donate my time to work at this particular institution, right? You can donate cash. You can donate in kind. Donate your time. I think that this is minimal that we should ask of ourselves when we think about the bigger scheme of things. So for me, World Waqf Day was about others. We wanted to have a day focused about others who have the least and complain the least, right? Anyone, whether you are a spiritualist or secularist, can connect to that, right? And so um, this, to me, is the antidote to conspicuous consumption. I hope people of conscience, Muslim or non-Muslim, will come on board, will basically further this, because in furthering this, we are basically furthering, I think what God has mandated us is help with bringing prosperity in whatever we can do. I love that. And how does Waqf as a concept compare against traditional charitable models? And where do you feel um, today's charities and philanthropy has gone wrong in a sense? Because there's still, I mean, global poverty is still a very living crisis of our time. How can Waqf address that? And what does that solution, what does that look like as a solution? Waqf has its own set of challenges, uh, uh, truth be told. And um, what, what we're trying to do is basically put it on the map. Let's look at it. Let's look at the success stories. Let's see what can be replicated. Let's see where leakage is. If one dollar I intend to give to this particular waf or that endowment results only in 40 cents getting to the recipient, then there's something wrong with that model because there's too much leakage. Can blockchain help the leakage, for example? Right? Extremely, extremely important. Technology has to be introduced into charity to reduce leakage. Because once you reduce leakage, that means people are actually seeing that more of their money is going for where they want. And that basically addresses this donation fatigue that all of us have. Right? We see that our money, because we don't have time for whatever reason, is going where we want, and it's 90 cents on the dollar going there. To me, that's inspirational. And I think to you and to your wide variety of uh, viewers, hopefully will feel the same way, that we need to think about leakage. Charity is charity, but we have donation fatigue. Why do we have more people every year when we've got so much money going by way of charity? There's something not right in this model. And for me, one aspect, and there's many things here, one aspect is leakage. Can technology address leakage? Can technology bring governance? Can technology bring accountability, right? People that are in this space are of great heart, but sometimes they don't have control of the process or cannot see the process. Can technology address this? Whether you're a wolf, whether you are a Western charity, the problems are the same, the concerns of those who are donating the same. So if we can address this, then I think we are on the path, and it's a long road, we are on the path of having meaningful, slow burn impact, which is important. 
Yeah, that's really great to hear. And um, it offers um, real hope for the challenges that so many people around the world are facing. Are there some key examples that you look to that you feel are modeling these systems and these processes in the way that you feel WACF should be uh, reflected as a concept? If I were to look at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation as a reference point because of the amount of money that has gone into that foundation and the amount of money that has been dispersed in Africa and in Asia and in many Muslim countries, and Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation having a partnership with the Islamic Development Bank, right, to address um, issues from malaria and stuff like this. I think the transparency and the operations of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is something for us to look as a guideline, right? That's extremely, extremely important because um, we need references um, in terms of model behavior, model processes um, for us to look at and then customize. So for me, uh, to your question, I think that that is a benchmark for us to consider, localize. Um, then we're onto something because honestly, a lot of people don't know about wakf in the West. The Muslim diaspora, they know about zakat because it's one of the five um, obligations of a Muslim, but very few know about a wakf. And a wakf is actually, I think, teaching a man and a family how to fish as opposed to giving them just fish for the day. I guess it would be interesting to hear how you envision the future of wakf um, as well as the Islamic finance sector. Um, do you think there are models that you know could uh, incorporate the, the the framework of Vakf um, and be offer like a blended solution to the marketplace, um, or are there other frameworks that are being developed right now within the sector that um, actually address some of some of the needs that have been outlined in today's conversation? I think we got to look at Vakf uh, uh, from the point of view of the green economy. One of the things that I've been talking about and others have been talking about is the green wakf. So you can have a hospital built, but where does it discharge the waste? How does it access food? How does it access suppliers? So we cannot look at wakf in isolation of a building or a land without looking at the externalities that come from it and how is that being addressed, right? Because Islam and other faiths talk about stewardship. So at one hand, you're building that something that's noble with an endowment, with a wolf. At the same time, you're creating externalities, which is inconsistent with your stewardship responsibilities. Right? So going forward, we have to think about um, stewardship responsibilities within wolves for us to have a holistic solution to this thing, because then we are part of what is globally trending. Green economy, blue economy, sustainability, climate change, yet at the same time, an endowment that's having an impact on communities which have been impacted. What do you think it will take to start shifting behaviors and responsibilities and inspiring individuals to start incorporating some of these 
values and principles in how they you know contribute to the economy so whether it's through the concept of wakf how do we get someone to um recognize that um the the need to actually make that a part of how they engage with organizations it has to be done by young people gen m is going to lead uh the muslims and its non-muslim counterpart that gen m who are values conscious they're going to lead because honestly my generation uh without me dating myself we have done what we can in hindsight we should have done more so whatever remaining productive years i have all i can do is inspire and motivate and basically saying that here is how i view it through my lens you take it you basically ideate and then you execute you learn from my mistakes I know that you're doing some incredible work with iPortal Live um in stewarding um socially responsible solutions and amplifying and spotlighting other organizations that are at the forefront of um building these organizations. I'd love to hear more about what what that entails and um how everyone else that's listening can get engaged. Okay, great. So in 19 19- 2013 I'm sorry uh, Harvard Business Review had a great article called The Platform Economy. It was about intermediation. It was about gig economy, sharing economy on a platform. If we look at how the Chinese community grew, it grew because it did business with each other, right? If we look at the Muslims as a whole, it's 56 countries dispersed. But the internet has removed borders, right? and so now the islamic economy is part of the islamic digital economy fast tracked because of covid-19 right uh shocks accelerate innovation that's the saying and so what we've done is saying let's take the 10 verticals of this islamic economy you mentioned modest fashion halal food islamic finance so on and so forth let's put them on a platform because the user has a common aligned interest their values driven right so if uh you're interested in modest fashion you have a small business you'd want to talk to someone in islamic finance who has excess compliant liquidity for your compliant opportunity right so uh, at one level it's an intermediation play but to me um what's really exciting is social impact startups in the muslim world so what we've done is covered 27 muslim majority countries under the entrepreneurship vertical and showcased that you know people talk about islamic fintech islamic fintech is a rounding error there's agrotech edutech cleantech renewable energy these are all compliant spaces in the compliance space and this is happening in Malaysia in happening in Kazakhstan happening in Indonesia but we focus on Islamic fintech let's focus in on the sectors because all these sectors are compliant there's no sin in these sectors there's no gambling there's no alcohol there's no pornography there's no gambling so by definition islam says everything is permissible unless a uh, condition is violated or the underlying is in the sin sector So what's exciting to me is looking at the social impact startup ecosystem in the Muslim world because it's about the youth it's about these countries who have their vision for knowledge based economies 
a bond or sukuk is not going to contribute to a knowledge-based economy. It's going to be young people who are founders and disrupting banks and government uh, processes that are going to be the change agents. So they are going to materialize the vision for knowledge-based economies. That, to me, is probably the most important thing about iPortal. There's a lot of content there, but if we focus in what really matters and what the young people connect to. Young people connect to startups. They want to learn about the startups in Malaysia and compared to startups in Indonesia, to Kazakhstan, and we actually have startups from Palestine, right? So let us use this platform and contribute to it and learn from it. And if there are things that are not right, then let's fix it. We don't have all the answers. We just have a platform and that platform is for stakeholders. A stakeholder is not defined by faith or by other label. A stakeholder in my eyes, is defined about what the intentions are. And that intention is for a better humanity by building a better society. I really love that. And that um, the way that you framed it in, in the sense that we need to become educators and trainers, um, though in a way that we can impart our resources and our knowledge and our networks to the next generation that can use that to build the solutions of our time because clearly our generation or previous generations haven't stewarded them in the way that was um that you know our our world really needs and it it would be interesting to see um what that looks like over the next 10 years and i know that iportal live um which um i'm very grateful for as well um in terms of you had um up effect join your rebuild palestine event which you hosted can you tell us a little bit about you know the the intention of organizing an event of that nature but also um what your plans are for the next steps in terms of, you know, how do you take a, a group of stakeholders that are working on social solutions and bring them together to start working collectively to build something that is meaningful and very much needed in Palestine? We don't want to take a top-down approach. Let the governments take care of this, whether it's from Oslo to the Abraham Accords, and it takes its own course we really don't have an impact. But a bottom-up approach is where we can have an impact. What I mean by a bottom-up approach, we've got the social uh, impact startup ecosystem, at least uh, the dots of it. What you're doing with Up Effect, basically saying social impact startups and crowdfunding, this is a must-have there because they're looking, how do I get funding? How do I get follow-on funding? That's the biggest challenge. So what you offered yesterday was a godsend, honestly. And I'm not saying this because you were, uh, and are talking, because you are addressing that. I think that if we look at what we really want to do, what we want to do is understand that the Palestine issue is a function of news cycles. You know, um, in May, it, uh, uh, in May 2021, those 11 days, it was at the forefront of the global conscious. But the news cycle moves on. But the suffering of the Palestinian people continues. I and like-minded people cannot live with that. 
having seen that, um, so we have to, I have to do what we can, even it has an iota effect, it's something that wasn't done before. So if we look to build a super app for the Palestinian economy, which has an opportunity to showcase these startups, which have not only product and services, but the opportunity to invest in them. If this super app that was raised yesterday has the opportunity to, bar- to do barter, great. If this uh, app has the opportunity to connect the Palestinian diaspora, who basically have their own channels to help their Palestinian families, fantastic. So we have to think outside the box and we have to basically say, you know what? For every problem, God has given us the brains to figure out a solution. If we can't figure out a solution, I think we've disappointed God. That's the way I look at that. I'm in full agreement with you there. And it's really important that we actually leverage our resources to serve those that need it the most. And so I really appreciated you organizing such a wonderful event um, to bring everyone together in, in, in service of this cause. It's four and a half hours, and I had to moderate. But it was adrenaline, especially the last session that kept it going. Everyone, honestly, was energized after four hours, and there's this feeling of call to action. I just cannot, and you cannot let that feeling go away. My hope is that will change um, with the work that you're doing. Um, with iPortal Live and World Wakf Day, I think it's important to have models like these and platforms like these that are encouraging the next generation and you know current um, ecosystem participants that are open to change and are open to considering that the way business has been functioning up until now has not been to the benefit of society or to the benefit of the planet. And so everything needs a rethink. Um, We need to, you know, re-envision business (laughs) and um, think through how do we come together collectively to serve and be of service to one another um, on this world. So thank you so much, Rushdie, for joining me and for sharing more about your work. Uh, a final question for me is where can our listeners learn more about you and the important work that you're engaged in and how can they participate? I think um, for participants, we don't have a label on them, Muslim, non-Muslim, atheist, spiritualist. It doesn't matter. It's about people who care, people who are concerned, and people who are compassionate. If we've got those attributes in these people and they basically address the issues in their locality, then in the aggregate, we're going to have an impact. The key message is get involved Don't listen to the status quo. Do not be intimidated by people saying no. Uh, Change agents, which I think a lot of you, your uh, viewers are, need to just do it. (laughs) Thank you so much, Rushdi. What a pleasure to have you on Readmitted Business and really excited to see how um, your work develops into meaningful action for the community. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to share a few thoughts and uh, uh, this was exciting and informative, so thank you. We'll be back on the first Wednesday of every month with a new episode. To 
ensure you don't miss out, please subscribe to Reinvision Business on your favorite podcasting platform, whether that is Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or something else. If you've enjoyed our episode, please leave us a five-star review so that others can learn about Reinvision Business. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter with the handle UpEffect for updates on the next episode. Until next month.